Welcome to America Now. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. The great witch hunt is on, my friends. Welcome to uh, Buck Sexton with America Now. Buck is here with you. Weird to speak in third person, but that's me. Uh... The great Trump witch hunt is upon us. They are so happy with this situation now that there is a special counsel, which is special prosecutor. People use the terms pretty interchangeably. Uh, Special counsel has been appointed. Um, I wrote about this on thefederalist.com earlier today. I think this is uh, perilous for the administration. I think it's a bad move. Um, I, I, I worry that a good person might get sent to prison for the purposes of placating the angry leftist Democrat mob. And I don't mean Trump. I mean some other person you may not even know about who's attached to this White House who gets just jammed up in a process crime. The, uh, the, the, the Scooter Libby treatment, if you will. Um, POTUS, President of the United States, pardon me, I shouldn't POTUS, please. It's like I'm a character on the West Wing walking around talking about POTUS for no reason. Well, that show, the purpose of that show, Aaron Sorkin was the uh, head writer on it for for many seasons, was to create, after Bush's win in 2000, to create an alternative presidency for liberals to watch and to think was really the presidency, or, or to give them the comfort, the psychological comfort of, this is what a liberal presidency would be like. Uh, and this was also at a time when it was commonplace to say that Bush stole the election, You'll notice this isn't the first time that the left has been crying like a bunch of little babies over the whole presidential election thing. They said that Bush was illegitimate in 2000, and it wasn't the Russians that helped him, but it was the Supreme Court. It was Scalia. It was stolen. Judges stole the election from Al Gore. That Al Gore was almost the president of the United States is something that we will never really be able to live down as a national, as a, a national shame and indignity it's really bad um anyway but now here we are they're saying it's all about russia potus was hanging out today and uh, i just did it i said i wouldn't do it president trump thank you buck uh was hanging out today and uh he was with the what was the president of columbia press conference you can imagine after yesterday's news and the week that the president has had thus far with he disclosed all this information to Russia. I don't think he disclosed anything that's that sensitive. Uh, and then Comey, the Comey memo. Oh, we'll get to the Comey memo here shortly. Um, but and I, and I forgot to bring up something yesterday uh, about the failure to report from Comey, which I meant to get to, but we had such a busy show and so much going on. And Speaking of which, today I've got uh, Matt Walsh joining. Um, I've got Michael Goodwin of the New York Post. I've uh, White House correspondent Sarah Westwood of the Washington Examiner. I'm going to talk to you about the uh, passing of 
Roger Ailes and rock star Chris Cornell. An update for you on a Yale dean who got into some trouble for letting the truth slip about what social justice warriors think about, quote, white trash. A lot of show today that's not just going to be uh, Trump-tastic, uh, you know, Trump Trumpiness. Um, but there, the, the main stuff today obviously has to do with the president and what's been going on. So the special counsel's appointed yesterday. I thought this was a bad idea. And um, just mark my words, we, we will at some point in the future, I will play back this show opening on a future show where it's clear that conceding to the political pressure of a special counsel, special prosecutor, same idea, uh, was a blunder. It is not, you, you never get good faith points, or I should say you never get good faith reciprocity from Democrats for, res, for, for trying to be the good guy, uh, trying to be the good person, pardon me for the microaggression, for trying to be the good human being. The Democrats just look at that as weakness. Um, that's not something that will be met halfway on their side. And with the special counsel, this is going to turn into an, uh, well, never mind the actual outcome of it, which who knows when that will be. It could drag on for years. It, uh, any leaks from the investigation uh, will be uh, jumped on by the media for the purposes of painting Trump as, as negatively as possible. Um, and it's there, there's no good faith points, as I said. So what's the benefit here? It's not like the choices were special counsel or no investigation whatsoever, and the media is going to be in absolute freakout mode the entire time Trump's in office. Uh, they're going to be in the freakout mode regardless of any investigation, anything that happens. But uh, the DOJ was investigating this already. And Congress is investigating this. And the, the the two most important points that I take away from the entire Trump-Russia conspiracy, the two most important points that I have in my mind at this point, and I have yet to come across anybody who can make me think, who can convince me that they're not essential to a, uh, a proper understanding of what's going on here, um, would be that if there was any collusion... We would have heard about it by now because that's such uh, politically valuable or damaging, depending on which side of the aisle you're on, uh, but such politically potent information that it's not feasible. It's not conceivable that it wouldn't have leaked. It's just not. Someone in one of the federal agencies, someone in the FBI, someone somewhere who said, aha, here is the evidence of collusion, even if it wasn't illegal, I should note, which I'll get to that part of this in a second, too. But even if there was no illegality, if it just looked bad, right, which is what we saw with the Comey memo, I should note. I don't think there's any illegality there, but it doesn't look great, assuming it's real and verified, which is another point we have to get to here shortly. But we would know. The smoking gun is not out there hidden somewhere. The smoking gun would have been found if it existed. That it does not exist should factor heavily into our conclusions about the possible guilt or lack thereof, of a Trump campaign in Russia collusion. As I've said, collusion is not even a collusion is not even a crime. So now we get into another level of this, uh, or another part of this. The second um, most important aspect of understanding the Trump Russia investigation, as I see it at this point, 
is it doesn't make any sense. Why would the president take any risk, particularly, or any of his top aides as well, take a criminal risk for such an outlandish and likely ineffectual plan, right? If the plan was, okay, we're going to hack the voting machines, we're going to make this election a different election, now you're talking about going to federal prison for decades if you're caught, so that's still kind of crazy, but at least that's a plan. But sitting down, as I've said to you, in a cafe in, who knows, Eastern Europe or wherever, and meeting with some shady Russian character who is, uh, you know, passing you a bottle of vodka across the table. That's a second second microaggression, Buck. Maybe maybe he drinks wine coolers. You don't know. You shouldn't just come. You shouldn't just stereotype. Who knows? Maybe he likes Zima, although I don't know how he'd get it because it's been not made for a long time. I used to rock the Zima way back in the day. Um, only when I was uh, of age to drink, of course. But uh, let's say they sit down for this meeting and, and they're going to talk about collusion. Uh, that would make no sense because there's nothing that the Trump campaign could do to help. The Russians don't need help hacking. In fact, getting the Trump people involved in this in any way would be damaging because if the Russians want to help Trump so they have a pliant president in office, they, they wouldn't want to do something that could make him a former president. That doesn't make sense. So the the whole the, the motive of the collusion, forget about what, the ethics and whether Trump would do it, for me, is non-existent. It's nonsense. It doesn't. It does not make sense. But now I can tell that there's a lot of self-satisfied grins on the faces of those in the media who still pretend not to have, um, not to have opinions on this. And just so you know, I invite uh, people from different networks to come on and, and explain to me their position on this. Uh, and they tend to they tend to stay away from radio. The big TV news anchors tend to stay away from radio because they don't control the format and there's no, you know, th- this is an open forum, right? It's, it's just somebody else calls in and it's, you know, voice a voice, sort of mano a mano, I guess. Um, even mano, oh no, well, no, mano a mano is, uh, it's, that's hand to, that's hand, to hand right? Um, anyway, I'm sorry, sometimes I get these things wrong. Uh, but they won't call in. Because they don't want to, um, uh, yeah, mano mano's hand to hand. Uh, I just didn't think that was my third microaggression for like man you know, to man. No, no, mano a mano is hand to hand, not man to man. Um, but they, they won't come on and, and explain to me why they think that taking just running with one anti Trump story after another is not somehow indicative of a political mindset. They, they won't even come on. They, they, they don't want to talk to me about it. I've tried. Uh, so I'll keep trying. And if enough of you uh, keep listening and telling your friends about it, the show is going to keep growing and get so big that it'll be unavoidable for some of them because then I'll start calling them out. It's not worth calling people out by name until you can inundate them, right? In, until it's inescapable. Um, so we shall see. Uh, we shall see if that can happen. But the president was addressing this today. As I said, the great witch hunt is on now, and that's what it is. And I'm not somebody who apolog- or uh, explains away or apologizes for everything that Trump does. I think he's made some mistakes, and I, I have some thoughts on that that I'll share with you in, in just a minute here. But um, I think the president's right to call it a witch hunt. I, I do. 
Well, I respect the move, but the entire thing has been a witch hunt, and uh, there is no collusion between certainly myself and my campaign, but I can always speak for myself and the Russians, zero. Uh, I think it divides the country. I think we have uh, a very divided country because of that and many other things. It's going to uh, exacerbate all of the worst partisan impulses that exist in this country. And uh, that's that's inescapable now, I, I think, at this point. But it is it is a witch hunt, and there's no uh, rationale really behind this other than demeaning, debasing, and destroying this presidency. Yet here we are. Special counsel has been appointed. Robert Mueller, the uh, former uh, former FBI director, now is going to be uh, heading this up. The Pressure on him to do something will be tremendous, meaning to to bring charges against someone. And I think if we had to place bets, the most likely person to face charges of some kind would be, uh, and I'm not saying he's guilty of anything, I'm saying face charges. And I'm talking about the politics of a situation here, not the legality of it, but I think the politics of this dictate that they're going to try to find a way to scooter Libby, General Michael Flynn, if you will, to pull the scooter Libby on Michael Flynn. Uh, That's what I think will happen. The president was asked about this today. You at any time urge former FBI Director James Comey in any way, shape or form to close or to back down the investigation into Michael Flynn. And also, as you look back. No. Next question. Next question. As you look back over the past six months or year, Um, Have you had any recollection where you've wondered if anything you have done has been something that might be worthy of criminal charges in these investigations or impeachment, as some on the left are implying? I think it's totally ridiculous. Everybody thinks so. And again, we have to get back to uh, working our country properly so that we can take care of the problems that we have. We have plenty of problems. So you have reporters now asking, is there anything you think you did that's criminal? You know, I remember when refusing to genuflect and say that Barack Obama was the most brilliant human being to have ever graced the the earth was was like it was was kind of racist. I I remember when when to take that position, the media was, what are you doing? There's a there's some sort of a dog whistle going on here. There's racism Uh, because you're like, well, I don't think Obama's quite as brilliant as all these people say he is. In fact, I think he's uh, not really ever speaking about ideas in a way that makes him seem uh, like he is deeply versed in things. He just comes across as somebody who is eloquent on issues that he's been prepped on, but not a a deep thinker per se. To say something like that was to receive the hatred of the media. Now you've got reporters that'll stand up there and uh, they will ask the president, you know, so you do any like really bad criminal stuff? You betray your country in the last year? This is in the White House. This is out in the open. This isn't some fringe group somewhere. This is a White House press corps. So, Mr. President, are, are you a traitor? It's such a disgrace, isn't it? Not Trump. I mean, all those who are buying into this stuff. For what? Quick break. We'll be right back. <laughs> this is quite the story on the Washington uh, Post. House Majority Leader to colleagues in 2016. I think Putin pays Trump. 
Let me read you from this. A month before Donald Trump clinched the Republican nomination, one of his closest allies in Congress, House Majority Leader Kevin McCarthy, made a politically explosive assertion in a private conversation on Capitol Hill with his fellow GOP leaders that Trump could be the beneficiary of payments from Russian President Vladimir Putin. There's two people I think Putin pays, Rohrbacher and Trump, McCarthy said, according to a recording of the June, 2015, June 15, 2016 exchange, which was listened to and verified by the Washington Post. Uh, this is a, maybe something of an aside. I, I know that I'm supposed to just, you know, go into my corner and Democrats go into their corner and fight. Rawr, who's, is it true? Is it not true? Forget about that. I find it so deeply distasteful and uh, and really uh, unfortunate in every way that we can never assume anymore that our, our, any conversation is private. Anything is subject to uh, recording. Anything is subject to somebody passing along to reporters later. Um, now, I know for a lot of us who live in private life, you're like, well, you know, I don't really care. But there is just such a lack of of honor and integrity among all these people in D.C. who have have power and have authority, how they act like a bunch of gossipy schoolgirls and gossipy schoolboys. See, no microaggression. Um, they, uh, they they just have. There's just not a sense of honor that's pervasive in in D.C. and and among so many journalists too. Uh, you know, journalists out there that are, are passing along this stuff, I always wonder, at what point is damaging hearsay not something that you would want to run as a... Now, I know this is they're saying there was a recording of it, but I've seen other things. At what point is really damaging hearsay not something you want to uh, run with and report on? And, you know, an, another thing on the anonymous sources that we're always seeing in all these different stories, if someone is going to be an anonymous source... It better be because they're actually taking a risk, uh, meaning that they could get in they could get in real trouble for what they're doing or saying instead of they just don't want to be on the record because, you know, they want to be taking taking shots only from behind cover. Uh, I think, you know, journalists get all huffy about this recently. I've seen this earlier this week, specifically in response to the Comey, the Comey memo that supposedly says that Trump uh said, uh, you know, I hope you can uh, see your, whatever, I forget, was, people were getting mad at me yesterday because I didn't quote it completely. It was, I hope, you know, something, something, this this will pass or whatever. I mean, it wasn't, whatever it was he said, uh, you know, I, I hope you can find your way past this or something like that. It doesn't really matter. He just said, I hope something, and he didn't give him direct order. That's the point. Um, but, you know, journalists act like, well, yeah, sources, anonymous, it's about, all about speaking truth to power. No, they give anonymity to people just so that they can take cheap shots and pot shots and never have to stand up and be a man about it. They they do that. Um, they let people uh, take cheap shots and undermine other people publicly and write nasty things about them. And uh, and then they say, well, no, I'm going to keep my sources. My sources are going to be anonymous. You know, it's all about a judgment call. But you see, the problem is with sources, as with, as with so much else with journalists these days... They exercise terrible judgment. So, something to keep in mind. Um, let's talk about some other stuff in just a sec. Stay with me. Buck Sexton with America Now. We are gold. 
The Freedom Hut is fired up as Team Buck assembles shoulder to shoulder, shields high. Call in 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. No doubt many of you have seen that uh, Roger Ailes uh, passed away in Florida. Um, this was uh, it was unexpected uh, of natural causes, um, and he was uh, 77 years old. Uh, this is a moment in time for conservative media that I, I think feel something like staring into the, the abyss. Uh, there are some. Well, let, let me just talk first about Fox and then I'll get into where I think all this is going. You know, I, I met Roger Ailes once. I uh, never got a chance to meet him. Uh, I was over at Fox. I mean, you'll see you see me at Fox sometimes, probably during the week uh, on TV. Uh, but I, I never had a meeting with Roger Ailes. Um, I met him once outside of a speech that was given by the alumni association of my grammar school, uh, where he gave a speech there, and I just met him and I told him that when I was overseas and I wanted a a taste of home. I knew that I could always um, walk in and uh, and throw on Fox News, and and I could just uh, feel like I was back home for a few minutes. And you know, I think he smiled and he appreciated that. Um, I was in media at the time. I, I didn't try to pitch him on a job, and I, I think he had no idea who I was. Um, but I just came over and just wanted to let him know that um, because you know, Fox has been a a a profound force in the lives of well millions of people in the sense that they watch it every night and it's a part of their routine. They get their information from it, but they also have been uh, comforted. I I used to comforted by the fact that they uh, weren't alone out there. Uh, For those of us who live in the cities, which are now all progressive strongholds, I mean, there is not a large U.S. city that is not just straight up leftist in its politics. And And I almost felt like part of uh, part of you know the the insurrection or you know part of a, of an ideological insurgency as a as a college kid, uh, I would throw on Fox News. I used to watch uh, the O'Reilly Factor. I would watch Hannity and Combs when it was still Hannity and Combs. Uh, may Alan Combs rest in peace as well. Uh, but I, I watched those shows and I remember I just loved it because there was all of a sudden a a network out there. There was a channel you could turn on on TV where you weren't constantly feeling like whatever you believe and however you you, you view the world, um, you're being told either explicitly or implicitly it's wrong. Uh, there was a channel that could, ref- that could reflect your values, which is, which is powerful, um, that, that there could be a news channel that didn't take this uh, childish and just disgraceful perspective that so many journalists, and, and I could tell you stories, do take, uh, journalists, many of them take the perspective that in their work, they should not advance U.S. interests over any other country's interests, that they're just there to speak truth. And I'm always like, uh, you're a U.S. citizen first and foremost. <laughs> do not do not start to think that because you're a big J journalist, uh, you do not have you should not have the interests of this country and your fellow citizens at heart. Many of them do. I know great patriotic journalists, uh, to be sure. But the general ethos among a lot of journalists is much closer to uh, a a cosmopolitanist uh, you know UN first perspective 
uh, which I find I find it odious. I find it deeply troublesome when that's the way that anyone in this country approaches their work or, or their life. But so Fox was a refuge from all of that. Uh, Fox felt like um, a place where, and before I mean, I mean before I even did any work there, and I wasn't ever intending to get into media. This just happened. Uh, I think I was always trying to get to Wall Street and kept getting diverted and found myself in the CIA and then found myself in the NYPD and then found myself at the Blaze and now on syndicated radio. Uh, all along, I think I wanted to be either a, a chef or who did I've always wanted to write. I enjoy writing and I've been I'm going to be doing more writing in the uh, weeks and months ahead. So BuckSexton.com, shameless plug for that. Uh, please do check it out. We've got great stuff there all day and I'll, I'll be posting columns as frequently as I can. But uh, I wanted to be a chef maybe or, or go to Wall Street. And people are like, why would you want to go? Well, I grew up in New York City. It's just, you know, if you grew up in Houston, you'd probably want to work in uh, or you'd at least consider working in the oil industry. You know, if you grew up in Los Angeles, maybe you want to work in Hollywood. Uh, the, the business of New York obviously has all the different career paths and jobs, but uh, the financial business, especially when I was growing up, it's it's more uh, broad based now. It's been spread out a lot more than it, than it used to be. But Wall Street, although it's not really where the Wall Street firms are, but at least New York based firms were Wall Street for my youth. And uh, they were you know, there, there was a culture here of that's that's where all this go anyway. Um, but yeah, so Fox, I, I didn't spend that much time in the in the uh, well, I've spent a lot of time in the building, but I didn't spend enough time in the building to ever meet Roger Ailes. Um, I also was always happy and, and I'll be giving you, I think, more of my thoughts about where conservative media is going, because we, we are in we are a we're ideologically divided still between the pro Trump and never Trump, whether they're open about that or not. But there is still a very, very real, very serious never Trump faction. Um, we are ideologically divided as conservatives, and we do not have the same unshakable edifice of conservative media and Fox News as we as we used to have. Uh, I, I'm not passing judgment or or either defending or um, attacking when it comes to O'Reilly and the lawsuits. I I don't know and and frankly I I don't really care. It's not something that I know about, nor do I get. Um, any joy uh, watching somebody go through that process, regardless of innocence or guilt. I mean, I'm, I have a soft spot, everybody. This is what comes out whenever we talk about social, I mean, no, it's probably not social justice. I make fun of social justice people, but, um, you know, prison sentencing and, uh, you know, I, 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 I always aim for mercy and leniency in all things when possible. Um, so I try to give also people the benefit of the doubt, but with, with O'Reilly, there was a part of me before I even got into media, but certainly since I've been in media, it's like at least that guy's untouchable. And same thing with Ailes. I know now he's passed away after he was pushed out at Fox, but at least at least they couldn't take those guys down. At least they couldn't take down Ailes. They couldn't take and take down O'Reilly. Um, they haven't, and you know, hopefully, God bless, will never be able to uh, take down Rush. They certainly have tried. But for a young guy in this business and who also cares about this business, I think conservative media matters. Uh, I think conservative media is important um, to have the perspective. I think that half the country's point of view should be reflected in news, in commentary, 
and much more so in pop culture too. Although that's we're in the nascent phase of trying to trying to change that. Um, speaking now, by the way, those of you who are just joining about uh, Roger Ailes passing away today, uh, a lot of other radio hosts and TV hosts uh, and and writers can go on at length about Roger, the best of Roger, the worst of Roger. Uh, I, I didn't know him, so I'm just speaking about what this means in in media right now. And you had these uh, these juggernauts, these unstoppable forces at Fox that had all of the leftist media gathered together against them, and yet they not just stayed, you know, stayed in the fight, but were winning. That Fox was able to beat uh, the opposition for as many years as it did, I think, is uh, a real a real testament uh, to the to the model, certainly to the business model, and uh, also to the need to serve that audience. You know, that's I, I view I am in a service position. People say you're creative. I say I'm not really creative. I'm in a service job. I try to serve the audience uh, that listens to this show by bringing them the best information, the deepest insights, and also some joy, some fun, you know, to, to relax, to know that you know, we're hanging out together, we're spending time together now, and you don't have to worry about Lumberg with the TPS reports. Uh, you can just chill with me. Or, or if you do have to worry about that, at least put an earpiece in so he can't see it if you're stuck in a cubicle at Inatech. But uh, Ailes passing after being pushed out and then also uh, O'Reilly um, getting booted from Fox. I don't know what the future of conservative media is right now. There are certainly some other outlets that are upstarts, that are uh, that are growing. You know, they're they're small right now, but they may have pretty serious uh, long-term goals and plans. I, I think some of them do. Um, I think there are some people who, uh, this is one thing about those in the news business, is a little bit of uh, a behind-the-curtain view of things. There are so many columnists who think they're good on TV and so many TV people who think they're good on radio and a fair amount of radio people who think they're good at the other two, and they're all wrong. Um, these are different skill sets. Writing is different from being a good television host, and being a good television host is miles away from being a good radio host. I will say that I think that um, I think that radio is a is a very transferable skill to TV, although you have to change some of your rhythms, right? Because I'm used to being able to talk to you for uh, 12, 15 minutes at a time, uh, nonstop with nobody else most of the time. On TV, you're lucky if you get 30 seconds before you're interrupted or you have to go into a commercial. So it's very, the the self-editing process is, is different. But you know, just because you're good behind a mic when no one sees you doesn't mean that you should be on TV. Some people don't belong on TV. They're just not good TV hosts. And some people are not uh, good writers, even though they're excellent communicators. So th- these, are, um, these are interesting times because I, I think there's a bit of a scramble I think those who are Republicans and want a a conservative media that is big time, that's not just all uh, worthy, but early stage startups that are um, fighting over, I shouldn't say fighting over, but that are working towards building more substantial audiences over time. Um, I, I have my concerns. Uh, Fox News didn't exist for a long time, and 
with without O'Reilly, I, I I don't know what it's really like over there. Without Ailes and O'Reilly, I, I, and and Shine for that matter, um, whom I did know a bit, uh, and and uh, obviously he's um, probably going to get involved in another media project soon. I would I would imagine uh, there are uh, some other efforts out there, but I think right now the left is in a stage of self congratulation with all of this. I think they believe that um, that they are they've put real cracks in in the hull of the conservative media battleship. I, I think they've uh, they've they've wounded conservative media. Um, well, I'm not saying that it's they orchestrated all this with all the suits, and the, although I do think that there's a lot going on behind the scenes that's not reported and that people have yet to find out about. Uh, this was not accidental. The media was certainly... I, I knew that there were... I knew the O'Reilly story was coming out in the New York Times weeks weeks before it happened. So that should tell you something, just based on my sources. Uh, this, was plan- this was plotted and planned well in advance. So I don't know what this means for the future, but I, I do think that now more than ever, uh, everyone who listens, watches, reads, uh, needs to understand that uh, they are... They are voting with their time. They are voting with their money. They are uh, the reason that this will either continue on or we could go back to an era where you know, you don't have the option of turning on your TV and seeing a well-produced, slick uh, cable news channel that is right of center. I mean, I think Fox is going to be fine for a while, but I'm just saying down the line, I don't know what the future is uh, of, well, I don't know what the future is of, of conservative media right now. The... Uh, the progressive wolves are circling. Uh, they think they can make it. Fox, which has been so dominant for so long, they think they can make a a real run for the number one spot in some of the primetime slots. So we will see. But you got to control the. If you control the information flow, you control everything else. And if the left reaches total information dominance again in the news space, it will be uh, a sad thing for the country. And I. I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon, but I, we've got to be on guard because things right now are looking bleak. We'll be right back. Mitchell in Arkansas on KENI. Hey, what's up? Hey, how you doing today? Good, sir. Thank you for calling in. Hey, um, yeah, I, I've been listening to you for a while, especially since the blaze. And, um, you know, I really like listening to you. I'm glad you guys are on the show. But, Thank you. Uh, the, the, uh, the thing that... Uh, it's very easy to get pessimistic about everything that's going on, but I, I really have to jump back into being a real op- optimist because, you know. I want some optimism. Like, Give me some optimism, Mitchell. Yeah, really. Well, well, you know, Buck, light and truth is in the world and dark, darkness will not overcome it. You know, so people, there's a lot of people out there that see what's going on. We just don't have a voice. We're not the media. But I think with what um, what that gentleman said to the president, very disrespectful to the office of the president. And I would suggest uh, that the president uh, go forward with shutting down the White House press room briefings and take questions from legitimate people, not the press. The press is not the, the people. The press are their own, their own little, uh, I don't know, <laughs> entity. But you're sure there's some good people in there, like you know you Hannity and 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 Rush, you know, because you're out there getting the word out. But as for the general media uh, or the lamestream media, I should say, uh, it, it's they're just. They are basically standing on the side of destruction. Everything they want to see, they just want to destroy or stand up for what's 
Can we also just say, Mitchell, that this notion that the First Amendment would die if we didn't have uh, daily White House press briefings. Let's just think about this for a second. So somebody who's not the president, whose job it is to be out there uh, representing the president, has to get peppered with questions and deal with them on the spot every single day because why? I I know we've gotten somewhat used to this, but it it used to be also a much less uh, aggressive affair now it's all about trying to trip up sean spicer make him look dumb ask questions that he can't uh readily answer or that um somehow put him on on the defensive and i understand that for the democrats that watch democrat media they just like to see the administration getting a thumb in the eye all the time but it really doesn't inform the american people i mean he could come out there and just either respond to questions that the journalists have all sent or just say, look, this is where we are in these different policies. Here you go. It has really the same Obama's effect. Administration, yeah, Obama's administration, they didn't have to take that. So this is obviously skewed. So why play this game of playing in their backyard when they're swinging barbed barb wire around and all we have is a threat? I, I do think, Mitchell, I, I think that the some people in the Trump administration that are advising Trump, I don't know if this is true of Trump himself, I think that with these press briefings and with their messaging and that they underestimated the ferocious hatred that the Democrats and the Democrat press corps actually have for them. I think they I know they're aware that it is there, but I think they underestimated it. Like, like maybe yeah. they thought they would get tired of, you know, throwing tomatoes at Sean Spicer at some point. They will never get tired of throwing <laughs> yeah. tomatoes at Sean Spicer. Yeah, they're too nice. They need to be more 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 strong like Trump and not take it. And I, I, I like Trump twittering out. I mean, sure, you know, if, if uh, you know, shooting off the hip sometimes, you know, you might shoot yourself in the foot. You got to be careful of that. But um, I, I think overall that it's a good idea that he goes out to the general populace and gets his word out. And you can't stop it. And that's what is, you know, great about uh, you know, Twitter and, you know, in, in you know. All right. Mitchell in Arkansas, I appreciate it, man. we got to run to a break, but thank you so much for calling in. Uh, we have uh, Michael Goodwin of the New York Post going to join us to talk about Comey, the special counsel, special prosecutor, same thing, uh, basically, and uh, where all that's going, plus Paul Ryan saying tax reform still going to happen and that the Congress is still working hard. I don't know about that, Paul. I'm uh you can when it comes to Congress, you can call me a skeptic. That and more coming up. Welcome back to the Freedom Hut on an island of liberty where you're the party and it's full of fellow patriots. Buck Sexton kicks it off. Welcome back, everybody. We've got Michael Goodwin on the line. He is a New York Post columnist and a Fox News contributor. His latest James Comey learned his J. Edgar Hoover lessons well. Michael, great to have you, sir. Thank you, Buck. Uh, All right, tell us about these lessons, these J. Edgar Hoover lessons that Mr. Comey apparently learned. Well, I think it starts with uh, recalling that Hoover served under six presidents, and after he died or after they left office, we discovered that five of them had wanted to fire him but were afraid to, including JFK, Richard Nixon uh, and Harry Truman said that uh, at one point that Hoover was running a police state, a secret police state, blackmailing, intimidating, um, and yet Harry Truman didn't fire him. So I think that when you look at Comey 
the, the power that he was accumulating uh, before he got fired made him act and feel, I believe, as though he were too big to fire, just like J. Edgar uh, Hoover. So I called him J. Edgar uh, Comey. But I think that memo seals the deal. That memo is very much the one about Trump, and there may well be others about other people. Uh, it's very much like an insurance policy. I mean, if it was such a terrible thing that Trump did, why didn't Comey come out with it at the time? Why did he write a memo and, and keep it in a file somewhere? Well, well, we know what Comey said on, on May 3rd um, when asked if there were any requests to shut down the investigation under oath in front of Congress, James Comey said. If the attorney general or senior officials at the Department of Justice opposes a specific investigation, can they halt that FBI investigation? In theory, yes. Has it happened? Not in my experience because it would be a big deal to tell the FBI to stop doing something that, without an appropriate purpose. I mean, we're oftentimes, they give us opinions that we don't see a case there, and so you ought to stop investing resources in it. But I'm talking about a situation where we were told to stop something for a political reason. That would be a very big deal. It's not happened in my experience. Well, so what's the Comey memo, uh, the, all the hubbub about that? Right, right. Well, people forget that, don't they? Uh, look, but, but, but I think that he was very much about accumulating power and making himself unaccountable. And so that's why I supported Trump's firing him. It wasn't just the Clinton thing. It was the sense that he was going to do what he was going to do. I, I found, Buck, a self-righteousness there, uh, sanctimonious, frankly, about the way he was conducting investigations. He would do it his way. And, and for your listeners, if they haven't, I highly recommend the Rod Rosenstein letter. It's a memo to Sessions about why Comey deserved to be fired. It's just limited to the Clinton uh, case, but it is compelling unto itself that you have what he is describing without using the word as a rogue director of the FBI who does things what he wants to do without regard to traditions, without regard to his place in the pecking order. And then when this is pointed out to him universally, uh, Rosenstein says, Comey says, no, I did nothing wrong. So how do you have an employee who thinks he could, he's unaccountable to his superiors? I, I think that's the very definition of J. Edgar Hoover, and I think Comey was on his way to becoming that person. We're speaking to Michael Goodwin. He's a New York Post columnist and Fox News contributor. This piece out today, Michael, from the New York Times, that the Trump team knew that General Flynn was under investigation before he came to the White House. Uh, what, did, what did you make of this? It seems to me that there were some flags that should have been, uh, or there were some red flags they should have picked up on about Flynn, and they didn't. But well, what do you make of it? Well, look, uh, it, it's hard to know. I mean, being under investigation, um, you know, anybody can be under investigation. I mean, I, Trump himself, I'm sure, has been under investigation at various times in his life, whether it's a tax audit or something like that. So I think that the, the fact that he was under investigation, you don't automatically throw him under the bus, particularly Flynn had been so loyal to them. But, but I agree with you, Buck, the other thing you said, that there were other red flags about Michael Flynn, and he did not have a good reputation in the intelligence community. No, he did not. 
and and I don't know um, about the military side of it, but I do know from the intelligence side that he was not regarded. He was not regarded as a good manager. Uh, there there were sort of temperamental issues with him, his dealings with others, and Barack Obama, I think, was pressured to fire him uh, by others uh, in that uh, in the CIA. Um, intelligence world. So I, I think that there were a number of reasons why Flynn was, would not work out, uh, but I don't fault them for, uh, on the basis of an investigation. I, I think it, you know, it's, it's fair to let it run its course. Uh, when he lied to Pence, I think that was a fireable offense uh, about his conversations with the Russian ambassador, whether they discussed sanctions. Uh, so I think Trump made the right move at the right time on that. I think he made the right move on Comey, though I don't know where, when there would have been a great time to fire Comey. There was no good time from the time that Trump was inaugurated uh, until he actually fired him. There was no perfect moment. Don't forget, Rosenstein had just been confirmed two weeks earlier. Sessions had been confirmed late and was recused from uh, the whole Russia thing. So there was no easy opening to fire Comey. I think Trump did it as soon as he reasonably could. And this piece from Reuters that the Trump campaign had 18, at least 18 undisclosed contacts with Russians. Uh, This is including 18 calls and emails they're saying. First of all, I want to know, how do they get this information? How does Reuters come up with this? Uh, uh, leaks. <laughs> I think leaks. Look, and let me just say uh, about regarding Comey, I think Comey was a leaker. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I think that's one of the reasons he was reluctant. I mean, did he ever do a leak investigation? Uh, I, I mean, I just think that he was part of the Washington establishment. I think Comey used leaks to his advantage. Now, I don't know that he ever leaked classified material, but I, I don't uh, for a moment doubt that he was part of playing the Washington game that way. Um, but look, uh, somebody is leaking constantly. Some of this stuff is, is just seamy. Uh, other stuff is classified and should be kept secret, and it's a crime to leak it. But again, 18 contacts, undisclosed, that sounds sinister. How many undisclosed contacts did they have with China? How many with uh, Israel? How many with, uh, uh, you know, Latin American countries? So, again, I think that there is a presumption now among the media and the stories are all written as though it's all a film noir. Everything is dark. Everything is gloomy. Everything is opaque. And any, any word now is used in a sinister fashion. Undisclosed contacts. Well, Russia is now a, a boogeyman on the global scale. I mean, anything having to do with Russia at this point that you read about in the press has this this ominous uh, this ominous undertone. You know, it, it's like the Kremlin is planning to invade us any day now. When Russian all, all the uh, the sanctimonious lectures that I hear from uh, from pundits on on some of the non Fox channels about how Russia's uh, Russia treat well when I say Russia Putin and the Kremlin deal with journalists and their foreign policy and what they've done in Syria and Crimea and that was all going on for 8 years of Obama but now Russia's terrifying it, it was fine for the 8 years of Obama but now it's really scary right and you know look every president has made a mistake with Putin uh, don't forget George Bush looked into his soul yeah and- i know not a great moment for bush yeah, and, and, and Obama with, and Hillary with the reset. Uh, I mean, what was the reset about? It was because Bush had seen the light about Putin, uh, particularly over Georgia and Moldova, 
where he had essentially invaded sections of those, much as he did with uh, Crimea in Ukraine. And so he had done this. Bush had started the sanctions. Bush had started to try to isolate Russia. And Obama comes along, oh, it's, it, it's Bush's fault. It's not Putin's fault. We're going to reset, and we're going to start this over. Well, here we, you know, we know how that movie ends, right? He comes by the end of his tenure. Obama is railing against Russia and giving him the cold stare and the cold shoulder, and and Hillary is is claiming that uh, Putin wants to defeat her because she's afra- he's afraid of her. Michael, I've um, only got a, I got a couple more for you before we're going to run into a break. Okay. Um, we're speaking to Michael Goodwin of the New York Post. One new FBI director. Uh, what do you think of Lieberman? And does it matter? It does matter. Uh, I'm not sure what I think of Lieberman. Um, I, I think it's not the choice that I was expecting. I, I think uh, Lieberman is going to be strong on the political side, and because he's not a career law enforcement person, uh, I think it's, it's, in effect, the people in the department are going to run him for the foreseeable future. He wouldn't be a bad short-term pick, an interim pick. I think Andrew McCabe is a terrible pick. Um, because of his his uh, conflicts of interest with the uh, the governor of Virginia, but look, I, 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 Lieberman would would surprise me, and I'm I'm not sure it's a great idea. I like him, I respect him, but I'm just not sure he's the right man for this problem right now. Any any predictions that you want to offer up as to where this whole special counsel investigation into Trump Russia collusion is going? Well, look, I, I'll tell you where I hope it's going to go. I, I hope if, if it's going to be as thorough as everyone in office talks about, I hope by that they mean that Comey and all of his memos will be part of this. Because I, I think Comey is right now by the media set up as the hero of the piece. He could also be the villain of the piece um, if we see the full picture. And so I think that if Comey, if Comey is going to be the witness against Trump, like in any trial, we, know, we need to know a lot about that witness. We need to know other things that witness has said and done. We need to test that witness's credibility. And if Comey is sitting on memos that detail uh, things that the Obama White House and Loretta Lynch and others in justice did to him and what they said to him and what they did about the Clinton investigation, I mean, don't forget, he testified to Congress that he regarded Lynch's meeting with Bill Clinton in Arizona as the capper of a series of conflicts. He said, others I can't talk about here. What were the other conflicts that he saw between the Justice Department and the Clintons that would make the Justice Department itself uh, toxic about this and had to recuse? He wanted the whole department cut out, it sounds like, except for the FBI. So I think Comey has a lot of explaining to do about some of his cryptic testimony. Michael Goodwin is a New York Post columnist and Fox News contributor. Keep an eye out for him on Fox and also go to NewYorkPost.com to read his latest. James Comey learned his J. Edgar Hoover lessons well. Michael, thank you so much for the time. Uh, Have a good weekend. Thank you, Buck. Always a pleasure. Uh, Team, we are going to hit a quick break and we'll be right back. Foolish Americans, you think you voted. You think you are free. You are wrong. We control you. We make your reality. The media does our bidding. We are the state within a state. We will defeat Trump at all costs. This is Dispatches 
from the deep state. We should throw their ambassador the hell out of the United States of America. This is this is the United States of America. This isn't this isn't Turkey. This isn't a third world country. And this kind of thing cannot go unresponded to diplomatically. So, uh, sorry, we actually we had a little, we were going to play you a Kucinich talking about the deep state there, but we got our clips mixed up. So pardon me for, for, uh, for the John, that, that was a, a mix up on the board here. That's going to happen to live radio. So that was John McCain talking about wanting the Turkish ambassador expelled. That is not a deep state thing. We have, Kuc- do we have the Kucinich? We don't have it. Okay. Well, it's on my list. This happens, guys. Sorry about that. Those of you who are like, what? That's not a dispatch from the deep state. Kucinich says that the deep state within the bureaucracy is trying to destroy Donald Trump's presidency. And I just thought it was interesting because Dennis Kucinich, who is uh, quite a character, um, former former representative Dennis Kucinich, uh, is a believer in, in the deep state destruction of the Trump administration. So that was why I played it there. Sorry, the, the McCain thing. Uh, I actually, I actually agree that what happened in Turkey is, or sorry, what happened here with the Turkish ambassadors, uh, reprehensible. So uh, I actually agree with John McCain on, on that aspect of it. At least I don't even know what he said with the rest of it, but, uh, on, on to the deep state for a moment here. Um, why we could talk about this a little bit. Uh, we also have, oh, well, I forget about the deep state. Let's talk about, um, uh, Lindsey, Lindsey Graham here had something interesting to say about the probe. Uh, It seems to me now to be considered a criminal investigation. And what does that mean for the Congress? I find it hard to subpoena records of somebody like Mr. Flynn, who may be subject to a criminal investigation because he has a right not to incriminate himself. As to Mr. Comey, the former director of the FBI coming before the committee, if I were uh, Mr. Mueller, I would jealously guard the witness pool. So one of the big losers in this decision is the public. We had a really good hearing with Yates and Clapper where the public could hear what happened with Ms. Yates and Mr. Clapper. I think that opportunity has been lost, maybe for the greater good, but there are a lot of people in that room who are shocked that when a special counsel has been appointed that Congress has limitations on what we can do. So that that is one aspect of this that I think will play out in unforeseeable ways in the weeks and months ahead uh, you have a an investigative process here with Lindsey Graham uh, or sorry with a uh, uh, former FBI director Mueller that will be uh, less in the public view but there will still be a tremendous amount of public pressure on it and any uh, anything that comes from out of the investigation whether it's a leak or some kind of an update, I'm not really sure how they'll go about that, will result in uh, denunciations of, of uh, Mueller. Is it is Mueller? i got to get this name right. I'm pretty sure it's not Mueller. It's Mueller. People say Mueller. 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 No, I think it's Mueller. Uh, but he's going to get into a lot of trouble with the Democrats. Not trouble, but they're, they're going to decide that he's the worst thing ever. Just like they did with Comey. It's a fun exercise to go back and watch how after Comey stepped out and said that no reasonable prosecutor would bring charges against Hillary Clinton, after that happened, uh, Comey was like the second coming. I mean, he was amazing. He was, 
He was the greatest civil servant in history. And then he gave the update on we're still looking at Hillary's email server. There's new emails. And then they hated him. And then at different times you had you had people we, we played some of this on the air. You had people who believed that Comey should have been fired and were on the record saying he should have been fired, who as soon as Trump fired him, were like, what's going on here? Tyranny. They were really freaked out about it. They were very, very upset. Um, so we shall see. Marco Rubio thinks that the special counsel, though, is going to work out just fine. So- that we are a nation of laws and we have institutions, irrespective of our politics or people's political views, those laws and those rules are going to be followed. And, uh, and that's what's happening here now. There is a special counsel who I believe will conduct a fair, thorough investigation that will establish facts and lead us uh, to the truth, wherever that may be. And I have full confidence that the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence is continuing to conduct its investigation on the counterintelligence aspects of Russian interference in our elections. Uh, so let's just all call this what it is with the special counsel. Uh, this is a, a, a person that will be running an investigation under the auspices of the Department of Justice because the media convinced the White House that the pressure was unbearable demanding this should happen because the DOJ couldn't handle the investigation. So they're saying the DOJ, you can't trust the Department of Justice to look into Trump-Russia collusion stuff. So let's just appoint somebody to be in the in a new chain of command in the Department of Justice. That's going to fix the problem. It's, it's really, a, a lot of this is just for show. It's the uh, optics of it, right? Because he still is, he still can be fired by the Deputy Attorney General. The... The notion that this creates a real separation and that this is a major distinction between what was previously going on with the DOJ and what we see here, uh, that's just, they're feeding the public a line with that one. Um, but there will be additional pressure and I think politicization. It will be a more politically volatile investigation because the choice to go with a special counsel will buy the anti-Trump left be, it already is viewed, but it will continue to be viewed as a concession that there's a problem, as a concession that pressure from the outside will get to the eventual truth of Trump's treason. That's what they think is going to happen at the end of all of this. And when that doesn't end up being the case, uh, unless they get some White House staffer who, you know, they catch for cheating on his taxes or something, unless they get somebody... They're going to say that this investigation, at the end, I promise you, there will be major voices in the Democratic Party and the media who, if there's no charges brought at the end, will say that uh, the fix was in and that this was all a scam. Be right back. He spreads freedom. Because freedom's not going to spread itself. Buck Sexton is back. White House correspondent for the Washington Examiner, Sarah Westwood, has uh, joined the Freedom Hunt for now. Uh, Sarah, thank you so much for giving us some time. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, so what's going on down at the White House? Must have been quite a week down there. Yes, you know, it's been pretty crazy. I think that the aides and the reporters are kind of looking forward to the slowdown in pace that there will be with uh, President Trump traveling overseas. Sarah, are you? We need we need you to uh, get to a get to a secure location. <laughs> I'm here. I'm here. Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, sure. Okay, so you're telling us White House, what's going on? Yes. Well, this has been a, a pretty bad week for the administration. I mean, it's been 
since uh, last Tuesday when President Trump abruptly dismissed the FBI director until this week when we learned that President Trump may have inadvertently revealed classified information to senior Russian officials and then potentially that in February he had pressured then-Director Comey to drop an investigation of General Flynn and that Comey had kept notes of that conversation, then that, that a special counsel finally had been appointed to just take the reins of this whole mess. Uh, the White House has really been struggling to get out from under this cloud, and now hopefully this foreign trip, uh, which the president leaves for tomorrow, will give them a chance to catch their breath. And uh, the stories about the Trump administration limiting daily press briefings. Uh, do you have any updates for us on that? And how, how did the press corps react to that, by the way? I mean, I, I, I've never been down there, so I, I imagine that there's some place where all of you guys, you know, from the New York Times and Politico and The Post and The Examiner, like, you're all just hanging out, you know, I don't know, maybe maybe vaping, comparing notes, maybe. talking about stuff, <laughs> you know, whatever. Yeah, <laughs> whatever you guys do down there. But uh, I don't know. So you, you tell me. But when they're uh, when you, this story comes out about uh, the possibility of cutting back on briefings, one, is that possible, you think? And two, was there a lot of backlash to that? Well, I think that there are there's a little bit of skepticism among reporters that President Trump is being serious when he threatens to stop the daily press briefings because uh, we've heard this before during the transition. There were suggestions that potentially the briefings wouldn't happen every day or if they did happen that they would not be on camera that the briefings would be moved out of the Brady room where they're currently conducted and potentially had in the executive office building there was a lot of talk about shaking up the way that uh, the White House press corps consumes information from the administration and none of it has come to fruition it stayed remarkably traditional with the press secretary or the deputy press secretary conducting an on-camera briefing most days. So it's it's hard for a lot of reporters to believe that there is going to be this seismic shift in uh, press interactions with the White House because they've been threatening that continuously and haven't done it. Do you think Spicer is going to stay? There were reports today that potentially Spicer's role is going to be switched up a little bit that maybe he'll be conducting more of the off-camera briefings that are just for the reporters who are physically present at the White House. And then Sarah Huckabee Sanders might take over more of the on-camera briefings. And we don't know if that's the case. It could be. I mean, Sean Spicer, remember, at the Republican National Committee did have a pretty large behind-the-scenes role in shaping messaging and strategy. And so there are now reports that he might move a little more behind the scenes to coming up with how the White House should frame certain issues, but not necessarily being the face of the White House. And Sarah Huckabee Sanders has had some success in putting up sort of a softer face and a softer touch on some of the news. Uh, Sean Spicer, he's a, a little more combative, to say the least. And so that kind of change might help the White House have a different tone when they're talking to the press. We're speaking to Sarah Westwood. She's a White House correspondent for the Washington Examiner. Sarah, did you get the sense that was this week different when you saw administration officials running around and, and just in, in terms of the atmospherics, the feeling in the White House, uh, w w were people hitting the panic button? Because there's all this stuff. I mean, I could sit here and just read all the different headlines and, and talk to people about all the uh, staff uh, aides and others 
uh, making jokes about impeachment, uh, you know, sort of dark humor about impeachment and and, uh, feeling like the sink, the sink is the ship is sinking. and, And you're reading a lot about that stuff. Did that come across this week or is that an exaggeration? Yeah, look, I think that the White House aides were more or less in a bunker mode and had that bunker mentality this week. And it's interesting how dramatically the mood shifted between last week and this week. I mean, remember, it's it's really only been a week, it seems like forever ago, that FBI Director Comey was fired from the administration. And that night, uh, White House aides were extremely responsive to reporters. They were in overdrive trying to spin that decision, trying to explain the president's motivations. And for the record, or on background, uh, they were stressing that it was Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein who made that decision. Then President Trump came out and directly contradicted their account uh, just 24 hours later. And since then, they've been very reluctant, even off the record, to tell reporters any specific party line because of that incident and because I think President Trump was uh, fairly unhappy with the fact that he ended up contradicting his communication staff. So that incident, I think, froze the lines of communication a little bit. And over the past week, they have been hunkered down and they haven't been willing to uh, freestyle any sort of spin operation because they're worried that that kind of situation might repeat itself. Anything that uh, is noteworthy beyond the the, the general uh, Trump is going overseas on a trip? I mean, can you give us any details or expectations for what's going to happen on Trump's first foreign expedition? Well, look, I think that there's a real strategy behind the destinations that Trump chose for his first three countries that he's visiting. I mean, you have uh, Saudi Arabia as as a hub of Islam. You have Israel, obviously a hub of Judaism. He'll be going to the Vatican for Catholicism. So there are there's a lot of religious significance to the cities that were chosen. He also has a NATO meeting and a G7 summit. So it gives him an opportunity to assume that statesman role to really focus on the renewed American leadership that he has been hoping to project. And I think National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster had a really brilliant line this week when he was briefing reporters at the White House about this trip. It was kind of lost in the shuffle, but he explained that one of the goals of this trip would be to explain that uh, America first doesn't mean America alone, meaning that the America first agenda is not incompatible with reasserted American dominance. That's been a, a point of discussion when we're talking about Trump's foreign policy agenda, and it's something I think we'll see really fleshed out on this trip. Sarah Westwood, Washington Examiner's White House correspondent. Thank you so much. Great to have you. Have a fun weekend. Thank you. Phones open, team, 844-900-BUCK, 844-900-2825. I'm seeing here that some Democrats, I found this very interesting. This just came up when I was on air. Some Democrats are telling other Democrats to just chill a little bit with the impeachment rhetoric. What's that all about? It's not out of a spirit of bipartisanship or fair play, my friends. I'll explain after the break. I think this is a a fascinating dynamic that's playing out right now, team. Uh, This is the New York Times. Let let me just read to you a little bit of this, and then I'll tell you what, what I see going on here. Uh, When House Democratic leaders, this was just earlier, yeah, this is today. 
when House Democratic leaders hastily called a news conference Wednesday to demonstrate their outrage at President Trump's latest dramatics, they took great pains to show they were not seeking to railroad him out of the White House. No one ought to, in my view, rush to embrace the most extraordinary remedy that involves the removal of the president from office, said Representative Schiff of California. He warned that Democrats should not let their actions, quote, be perceived as an effort to nullify the election by other means. Isn't that interesting? Um, because we should also note that there, I mean, you've got Maxine Waters saying that the president should be impeached. There are plans now among Democrat activists uh, the first week of July to hold impeachment pro, imp- impeachment marches on July 2nd across the nation. Um, you see, here's what's interesting about this. It, to call for impeachment before they have proof of any impeachable offense, which they do not, uh, plays into the debate over Trump in ways that Democrats may not be, uh, well... It may not show a lot of foresight because Trump has only been in office for a few months. The consp- Let's say, for example, that the Republicans, for whatever reason, next week completely caved and they uh, voted to impeach Donald Trump. And I mean, this is not going to happen, everybody. Right. But I just want to play this thought experiment out with you a little bit. And let's say Trump, even if he didn't get removed from office, he just said, you know what? I'm done. I'm out. And he resigned and said, I'm just going to go. I'm going to go play golf at Mar-a-Lago. I hear it's lovely this time of year. And he went and did that. Those who voted for Trump would not decide, oh, that was all a big waste of time because the agenda is impossible. And, uh, you know, he he was a fraud or he was. No, 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 no. People would understandably see that and say, "Okay, so the swamp is even deeper than we thought. The system is even more rigged. Than we anticipated. They wouldn't even let Trump be the president to do what he said he was going to do so we could all figure out if it works. You see, there is a balancing act right now within the Democrat Party that uh, and, and at the leadership levels, they want to br- they want to raise the specter of impeachment, but they don't want to push too hard right now for impeachment because timing really matters. And if they get ahead of where the public is on the issue, we will be able to look back and say, oh, well, let's say it's in July and I don't know, whatever the scandal that they're going to latch in onto then is out there. There's some revelation about uh, a member of Trump's campaign staff uh, had, you know, drinks with uh, a, a Russian dude who said he was going to do something great to help Trump win the election, whatever it may be. Let's say that'll have. And then they say, OK, well, we want to impeach him. This president's guilty of high crimes and misdemeanors. If they've been saying it, which they really have, but if they've been saying it every day for months, stretching back for months, it's clear that they're just using impeachment as a tool to to borrow from Schiff here to nullify the election. And there will be a tremendous resentment among Trump supporters and I think among Republicans more broadly as well. If they were able to uh, 
shut down the Trump presidency through even just just bringing an impeachment vote, which I don't I don't think they're going to. I'm talking about the voters, by the way. Forget about Congress. Congress is a bunch of cowards. I can't speak to what they're going to do. But if Trump never gets the opportunity to do what he said he was going to do, then the Democrats run up run up against the possibility of of turning him into a political symbol. So he he might have failed, but he will have failed mightily and righteously in taking on the swamp of D.C. politics. And they were fighting dirty to get rid of him. You see what I mean? It's this is why you have somebody like Schiff, uh, the Democrat from California, saying the Democrats should not let their actions, quote, be perceived as an effort to nullify the election by other means, end quote. Well, that's exactly what this is all about. There, you know, you can either believe the Democrats are just looking for any reason they can uh, they can come up with to call for impeachment, or you can think that Trump somehow just stumbles and from one criminal impeachable offense to uh, offense to another. Just you know, like a like a you know a guy who's had too much to drink at night trying to get get up the stairs. He's just a bumbling, stumbling fool and can't help himself. Now, I'm not saying that that, that Trump doesn't blurt out some stuff that's unhelpful to his cause. But I mean, criminal impeachable offenses or even just impeachable offenses. I know high crimes and misdemeanors is not a criminal standard. Impeachment is a political standard. That's important to keep in mind. And they realize this. The Democrats realize this. So they are not yet at a place where impeachment is impeachment is a is a real movement and they know it. So they'll raise impeachment as a rhetorical tool, right? They'll say, oh, impeach Trump, impeach Trump. Or, you know, we should be, somebody should be talking about, a few of them will say that, right? The, the leftist loony vanguard will be out there saying that. But they don't really want to impeach him yet because they know that subverting the Trump presidency through the mechanism of, you know, whether we got the 25th Amendment being raised by a conservative at the New York Times. Ross Douthit is a smart guy, but I don't, I don't know what he's thinking with this one, saying that Trump is in, essentially incompetent to hold the office he holds. Uh, the, the outrage that even, even if you could get enough never-Trumpers and centrist Republicans to go along with an effort to, let's say, impeach Donald Trump, if you remove him before, uh, before they've been able to create a strong enough narrative of not just his personal failings, but the failure of his agenda. All you do is forestall the next, the next uh, Trump move. The next time there'll be somebody who comes along and says the D.C. swamp. You just need to back me even more. The D.C. swamp is worse, is smellier, is deeper, is more grotesque than even Trump imagined. But I'm here now to to take it on and to save you. So, you know, it, it reminds me, let me, let me put this in, in perhaps even better terms than I have thus far. Remember in the movie Gladiator, which is a fantastic movie. Are you not entertained? You know what I'm talking about. It's Russell Crowe's, it's Russell Crowe's best movie, but Master and Commander is definitely in the number two role for me. I think Master and Commander is a phenomenal movie. Underrated. Was nominated for Best Picture. I think it lost to like Shakespeare in Love, maybe, which if that's true, it's just, it's just wrong. But when Commodus, the emperor, the uh, vile, childish, clearly Bernie Sanders-supporting emperor, 
um, in Gladiator, when, when Commodus wants to destroy Maximus, there's this whole problem of, I, I can't just, I can't just have somebody, you know, poison Maximus. I've got to take him out in the arena because I have to destroy what he stands for. In this analogy, they can't, they can't at this point just try to remove Trump from office. As much as they may dream about that, they have to destroy what Trump stands for, too. Right. So they they need to allow Trump more time in the political arena before they can try a removal proceeding against him via or an impeachment proceeding. And then removal obviously comes from the Senate. Um, and if they're hoping for a criminal investigation to do their work, I mean, they're 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 dreaming. I think I mean, that's that's never going to happen. But they may reach a point where they where there's enough of a uh, where Republicans get scared with the midterms coming. You know, you never know. It, it, it could happen. Uh, and who knows what's going to happen in the midterms, too. I don't think that you're going to have the Republicans lose the House, but Stranger Things, my friends. Another good show, by the way. I enjoyed it. I don't think it was worth all the hype that it got, but it was pretty decent. Um, but they, this is a very astute line here. They don't want to be perceived as nullifying the election by other means, because that's exactly what they're doing. And the truth would mean that Trumpism, even if Trump were to resign voluntarily, if they don't defeat the ideas behind Trumpism, they know that it will just come back and they'll have to fight it in another guise with another person at the helm. All right. Um, we're going to talk to uh, Matt Walsh and get into a whole bunch of other topics. Come out here in just a few. Stay with me. Buck Sexton with America Now. We are gold. The Freedom Hut is fired up as Team Buck assembles shoulder to shoulder, shields high. Call in 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Welcome back, everyone. We have the one and only Matt Walsh on the line. He's an author at The Blaze and at the mattwalshblog.com. His new book, The Unholy Trinity, Blocking the Left's Assault on Life, Marriage, and Gender, is out now. Matt, good to have you back. Hey, thanks for having me on. Um, talk to me first about Last Man Standing on ABC. I didn't see this show, but it's gotten a lot of it's gotten a lot of attention this week. I know the basic storyline, but bring everyone up to speed. Yeah, well, it's you know, it's, uh, it was a, a show that appealed to uh, conservatives. It was, I guess, you could say, a conservative show about you know the, the Last Man Standing, this uh, man who's who's trying to survive and maintain his masculinity in our ever uh, increasingly feminized and PC culture. Um, and, you know, the, the, the main characters are Republican conservative. Tim Allen plays them also Republican conservative. And it did well. It was getting good ratings. I think it was their number two comedy on the network, the number three scripted show overall, anchoring their Friday nights for five, six years. And they it, they, it was just canceled suddenly, mysteriously. And it was canceled only a few months after Tim Allen went on, I think it was Jimmy Kimmel, and admitted that he went to the uh, to Donald Trump's inauguration and made a comment about how conservatives are ostracized in Hollywood. And next thing you know, his show's canceled. And I just, you know, and they, of course, ABC came up with an explanation that had nothing to do with them penalizing him for his viewpoints. But it just, it's hard to see all of that, especially when you consider this is ABC uh, and how liberal their, their programming is. It's hard to consider all that a, a coincidence. I've been uh, always interested to see how the the storyline that we're often told or the excuse that's often made is that it's just about the profit motive and that conservative 
And, and I don't even know what a conservative show would mean, by the way, right? Like, I, I'm not suggesting that everything needs to be, that, that all entertainment needs to have guys in, uh, you know, in tri-quarter hats carrying muskets around talking about their love of George Washington, but just s- stories that have uh, traditional heroes or talk about traditional values and have intact families that love each other, things like that. We're always told that that doesn't sell. And then once in a while, something will come along where somebody manages to make a conservative or traditionalist or however you want to phrase it movie or tv show does phenomenally well i mean that wasn't the 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 bible on what was a discovery channel is is another example of this does incredibly well but then all these hollywood producers who are making flop after flop and spending all this money on crap they're like nah not not gonna go down that whole route none of this good guys bad guys god is real and love your family stuff yeah exactly and that's and that's you know you look at the the shows they decline to make or that they cancel. And then you look at the shows that they do make. I mean, uh, you know, ABC is a really good example because they have ever, it seems every season they have some new, you know, gay friendly show. That's just hit, like hitting you over the head with the LGBT stuff. They had their, their mini series on, uh, on gay rights. Uh, that was, it was, I mean, it's a total flop. These things are total flop. Nobody watches them because it doesn't appeal to the kind of audience that sits down to watch it. You know, the, the average family's not going to sit down at eight o'clock on a, on a Thursday night, and watch a dramatic special about gay rights. Like that's just, I'm, you know, maybe maybe we're all a bunch of homophobes for that, but we're not gonna, we're not, we're just, that's just not the kind of show we're watching. And yet they keep putting these shows out, even though nobody watches them. And it seems like it, 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 it's interesting because you would think that money and ratings would be their primary concern, but it does seem like when it comes down to it, their uh, really their hatred for whatever you want to call traditional Americans overrides uh, overrides everything else. And you're right that if it was really all about money. They every network on TV would be finding a way to make like a Bible show. They would, you know, they it would be like a police procedural or a reality show where you find them on every network. Now, if it was all about money, that they would be doing, they would all be doing that because because those they would get huge ratings. Um, but they just they don't want to. They'll sacrifice the ratings because they just don't want to put that kind of content out there. Just as an aside, did you see the Noah movie with Russell Crowe as <laughs> being in the Bible? I got through like like twenty minutes of it. I was like, I cannot believe. They spent real money to make this piece of garbage. Yeah, no, yeah, exa- yeah. They, they, they. There's obviously this great hunger for biblical, uh, con- you know, movies and content, and then they finally decide to put all this money into this. And, and, and then they take the Bible out of it, Matt. I mean, they do a biblical story, and it's like they make a new story. It's no longer the biblical story. Yeah, and the, the but the greatest example of this is the passion. I mean, look at the Passion of the Christ. Passion of the Christ was one that was one of the. The uh, you know one of the most successful R-rated movies of all time, one of the most successful movies of the 21st century. It was a beautiful piece of art, in my opinion. It was a great movie. On top of that, and it did it did enormously well, but the critics absolutely panned it, and and all of the you know the people, everyone involved in that production was like ostracized and alienated from the film industry. Jim Caviezel, Caviezel who I think deserved an Academy Award for his portrayal of Jesus, never got another. Just you never saw him in a movie ever again after that. Like, and this is, I mean, and, and this and it shows you you make it you make a a biblical movie that's respectful of the material, uh, and people will come out in droves to watch it. But they just they can't they can't bring themselves to do it, even when you dangle millions of dollars in front of them. It's pretty incredible. Speaking to uh, Matt Walsh, he's an author at The Blaze and has a new book out, The Unholy Trinity, which you should all check out. Available on Amazon right now. Um, Matt, to silence his critics once and for all, Donald Trump must come out as a woman. A column you wrote, no doubt, prepared for all of the fierce rage and trolling from the progressive left 
Yeah, well, they, well, well. Listen, it was a very serious proposal. My, I, you know, I was trying on my hat as a political strategist, which I don't do often, and uh, it was it was a serious proposal. My point is just look, all this all this uh, controversy swirling around Trump. If he wants to silence his critics, if he wants to calm the waters and save his presidency, this is one way you could do it. You could come out and come out as a transgender woman, um, transgender gay woman, even better. And I think that would that would you know what he'd be doing is he'd be he'd be on the left we have the the kind of like victim pyramid the victim hierarchy, and right now the problem is when you're a white Christian cisgendered Republican male, it's like you're way at the bottom you're you're way at the bottom of the of the victim hierarchy. Just you stringing all those words together is a microaggression now, by the way. Exactly, and you can't. And the problem is if you're at the it really is you know on the left it's. Their, their currency is victimization. That's what, you know, that's how you get powers if you can position yourself as a victim. And where Trump is, he can't do that, which is why he's always mocked when he tries to play the victim card, which he deserves to be mocked for because he is the president, for God's sake. But he could get away with it, is my point, if he just had a few of the, demogra- the demographic points in his favor. If he had a few victim points in his favor, he could get away with portraying himself as the victim. And so it's, look, I'm, I, I don't expect that necessarily they'll go this route, but. I think that they should at least consider it. You know, Donna Trump, I mean, it's it's just something to think about. Uh, Chelsea Manning would still be languishing in prison, I'm quite sure, if if there wasn't the transition to, to female component of the story. Uh, and that, that's what is... That's what's made Manning a, a hero to the left. And, and also, I should... And you also have, uh, what was it, Governor Jim McGreevy? Didn't he get in all kinds of trouble in New Jersey? But then he came out and he didn't he give that speech, right? I am a gay American, I think is what he said. And what looked like he was going to get into all kinds of trouble for, for corruption, for, for real problems, all of a sudden it just melted away. Yeah, yeah. And I say with Chelsea Manning, I think you're exactly I mean, that really that's how no matter how you feel about that situation. It, that's what's so insane. I mean, we just like gloss right over this kind of stuff because we're so used to it. But this is how insane it is that he really he would that he would still be in prison. I absolutely believe that. If he still identified as a man, if he, if he, if he wasn't a cross dresser, he would still be in prison. He got out of prison because of this. And that's the only, that's, you know, the main reason why he became this kind of like heroic figure on the left. There was a little bit of that beforehand, you know, when he originally was arrested, I think there were some people that were on his side, but after that point, that's when he became this heroic figure. And so, you know, I'm kind of joking about the Donald Trump thing, but it's, but this really is how it works. It's uh you know, this is how the the uh, the game works on the left. It's all about it's you know it's not about politics or anything. It's really about identity. It's you know what can you identify as to position yourself as a victim. For, without even getting into whether it's a good idea or not, whether it's rational or moral or anything else, why is it now that we are we are told that we have to celebrate as heroes those who go through a gender transition process? I mean, I, you know. The, the guy, this is like the old thing about the guy who runs into the building to save a bunch of kids in an orphanage when it's burning down and risks his life and maybe never sees his family again, but he wants to save the kids. That's a hero, right? 19-year-old walking around the streets of Ramadi to make sure that, uh, you know, the Islamic State uh, isn't trying to lop people's heads off with a scimitar on video. You know, that's a hero. Why is it heroic to change your gender? Yeah, well, that's, of, of course, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And this is not. You know, it's it's not even for the for the the people who do it. Um, it's not a you know it's 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 not an act that they're going through to help somebody else or you know putting themselves in danger. Well, I think they are putting themselves in physical danger, but that's not why they're doing it. They're doing it 
you know, kind of succumbing to their own to their own mental delusions, which which is not a heroic act. And even if you take that out of it, you know, let's just even put all that aside for a moment. No matter how you, even if you think that a, that it's possible to change your gender, doing something for yourself because it's something you feel like doing and you want to do and it's what you desire, that's not a heroic act at all. No matter what it is, it's not it's not heroic to just do something for yourself. So that's you know, before we even get into like talking about the validity of of transgenderism. It does. It's not heroic when you're simply serving yourself, and I think that's as a culture we seem to uh, struggle with that. With that fact, Matt Walsh is an author at the Blaze, and check out his book, The Unholy Trinity: Blocking the Left's Assault on Life, Marriage, and Gender. Matt, thank you so much for your time, man. Good to talk to you. Hey, I appreciate it, Buck. Team, we are going to hit a break. Eight four four nine hundred two eight two five. Eight four four nine hundred Buck, and then we'll be right back. This is a news story that should be getting much more attention, but right now everything is pulled into the the, the vortex of you know, Trump, Russia, uh, all this Kremlin stuff we've got going on, um, the allegations and accusations. But this is this is serious. Um, well, it, it it's uh, I should say it's concerning. Um, here's what happened: military official, U.S. airstrike hits pro-regime forces in Syria. This is from USA Today. A coalition airstrike in Syria on Thursday targeted pro-regime forces who were threatening a coalition base where advisors train anti-Islamic state fighters, the U.S.-led coalition command said. The forces came within a 34-mile defensive zone around the around the uh, Atanf base in southern Syria, according to the command. U.S. military officials have not yet determined if Syrian army forces were targeted in the strike or if they were militias aligned with the government of Syrian President Bashar Assad. Um, the airstrike targeted a tank and two earth movers that were building fighting positions within the defensive zone. Um, the Pentagon did not provide an estimate of casualties. Here's what's happening, everybody. While we're all being uh, caught up in this preposterous conspiracy theory madness about Trump and Russia and everything else. We have Kurdish militias, as I've explained to you before, on the ground in Syria, moving closer and closer to Raqqa. We are giving them air cover, and they are our proxy force there. Um, And we have U.S. advisors who are in Syria helping. Uh, So we have U.S. personnel, U.S. military in harm's way and uh, and involved in this fight. Once we get close enough to Raqqa and once we take it, uh, once it is taken from ISIS, it, it, this is going to become increasingly likely that there will be a military strike, an airstrike Muslim, that, that will uh, hit Assad forces. Now, keep in mind, up to this point, despite all the atrocities and the uh, the terrible actions of the Assad regime, we haven't been targeting Assad. We have not been fighting a war against Assad. We have uh, allowed for what is the de facto partition, the separation of Assad Syria from what you could call, uh, you know, rebelistan or something, or, you know, ISIS-stan. I mean, ISIS has been in control of parts of the country, of parts of Syria for years now. 
Um, we've only really been involved in the fighting against ISIS. But once ISIS's territory collapses and we are moving forces further and closer to uh, Assad's forces, what do we what do we do then? The possibility of either a miscalculation, a mistake, or an escalation, meaning a, a decision made in the Pentagon that we, we've got to push back against Assad's forces with lethal force, would be opening up a whole new phase of the conflict. And we should be very wary about this, because while the YPG militia with U.S. air cover may be in a very uh, or in a strong position against the Islamic State. If the Assad regime turns its guns on that YPG militia, and if the U.S. now has personnel who are in harm's way, uh, this can become much messier and and is, is a precarious uh, situation, to be sure. Um, also, by the way, there's this from the New York Post today to keep in mind. ISIS is forming a chemical weapon cell made up of countless experts from Iraq and Syria, uh, according to a report cited here in the Washington, in the New York Post. A U.S. official told CNN that the terror group is gathering all of its chemical weapons specialists from across the Middle East and bringing them to their new de facto capital in the Euphrates River Valley. Um, located in Syria, between Mayadin and Al-Qaim, the cell will sit just across the Iraqi border, and will be composed of people who have never worked together. A defense official told CNN that thousands of ISIS operatives and sympathizers are believed to be in the area, and that Islamic State leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi may also be hunkered down there. The region has, has served as the headquarters for the group in the wake of the U.S.-led offensive on Raqqa, its one-time capital. Um, so, uh, there are some... Un- there are some aspects to this anti-ISIS fight that are going on that are, are likely to get much nastier, and this could be more dangerous both for our allies as well as for the U.S. forces who are deployed there. But really, the question that no one has answered yet, the, the issue that has yet to be touched on by the, by the Trump administration, and they're going to have to, and by the way, I haven't even spoken to you about the Afghan review for the Afghanistan uh, anti-Taliban fight, which you know is is not going well. I've been talking about it here on the show, and we might do a deep dive on that if not tomorrow, probably sometime next week. But what is the U.S. relationship with Assad's Syria once ISIS is gone? Let, let's assume for a second that the current uh, momentum holds, and that the Islamic State loses Raqqa and the surrounding areas, and there is this unsteady, um, but, well, this unsteady situation of Kurdish militia, maybe some free Syrian army, Sunni Arabs, who are providing security beyond regime territory. You see, Assad's going to want that territory back. So do we guarantee that that territory stays out of Assad's hands? Uh, what what does that mean? I don't even know what the international law implications, not that that necessarily matters all that much, but what are the international law implications here? Syria is still a sovereign, supposed to be a sovereign country. So if we destroy the terrorist uh, rebels in Syria, the terrorist anti-Assad forces, and destroy the jihadists, which is still, a, that's not a done deal yet, but it seems like it's happening, 
What do we tell Assad when he says, okay, well, we want this territory back? And by the way, do we do we allow for um, there to be a an international criminal court proceeding against Assad? Do, do we press war war crime charges against Assad? Uh, or does the international community go and do this? I mean, defeating ISIS is a necessary step, but it is in Syria, but it's just one step of many for a problem that the Obama administration just just allowed to implode, to just fester, to just get as as bad and hopeless and, and horrible as it could with almost with, with certainly no strategic vision from the Obama administration and and a really a, a shocking indifference to what was going on in that country. Uh, you know, Obama got off easy uh, from uh, from the perspective of certainly the press and just U.S. public opinion in general because we weren't always being reminded of how terrible things were in Syria and how it didn't have to be that way. In fact, the Obama administration took some preliminary steps to try and at least dampen down the conflict, and they were complete flops, abject, abject failures. Uh, the Trump administration is going to have its hands full. I know he's heading out to the Middle East. Uh, that's happening tomorrow. But uh, President Trump is going to have to come up with some very creative and firm policy solutions for what what's the world's relationship? What's the international community's relationship going to be with Syria going forward? What do we do when Assad's like, hey, thanks for kicking ISIS out. I, I want that town back, by the way. I haven't heard anybody with an answer to these questions. We'll be back in a minute. Black hole sun, won't you come? Wash away the rain. Black hole sun, won't you come? Won't you come? Won't you come? Chris Cornell, dead today. That was a black hole sun. Probably his best-known song uh, from his days as the lead singer of Soundgarden. I'm not somebody who does a lot of uh, pop culture here on the show, so I-, I won't pretend that all of a sudden I'm a I'm a music critic. Um, I saw this though, and this is one of those uh, rare times when someone passes away. In this case, very tragically, um, my understanding is that it was a suicide. But someone you didn't know, but had a, a real effect on at least a part of your life passes away. And uh, it gets you thinking. I can say that much. Uh, the other, well, there have been a few times where this has happened with me. It's rare because I don't spend a lot of time thinking about uh, pop culture or, you know, I'm, I'm so steeped in what I do here. And before that, uh, so busy with my time in government on counterterrorism stuff. Um, when Christopher Hitchens died, I remember I also felt like this was a person who was playing a role in my life that I had never met and didn't know, but I read so many of his columns and books that it it felt like I knew him in some way. And I had many friends, actually, in, in media who knew him quite well. Uh, I never had the chance to get to know him. But uh, Chris Cornell, lead singer of Soundgarden and later Audio Slave. Uh, and also the Temple of the Dog, I believe, was another uh, band that he was involved with for a while. It just reminds me of that period of my life back in the 90s when 
everything seemed like it was all going to work out. And, and I suppose this is why we have uh, the nostalgia that we do for the music of our youth, whatever that may be. I, I kind of get now why uh, my parents and their friends and, and their generation feel a certain allegiance to the Rolling Stones such that if you bring up that the Rolling Stones are maybe a little past their prime or their music is just not really standing up to the test of time quite the way that some, oh, and there's outrage, outrage, I tell you. They do not want to hear that at all. Um, and I can understand why. You know, I, I hear Soundgarden. Music has this really uh, profound effect I think on on all of us where it's not even just you like the song but it often triggers a mindset or (laughs) triggering but triggering can be a good thing it triggers a mindset or uh, reminds you of a time in your life and and it can transport you to it in in a in a profound way I know for a lot of you you're probably sitting there thinking about whatever those bands would be and then you also know later on, it's not that it's necessarily the best band. You may not even love the song, but uh, it reminds you of a time, right? And uh, for me, Soundgarden, uh, which Chris Cornell was the lead singer of, uh, reminds me of the 90s, which I, I think uh, Black Hole Sun came out in 94, so I would have been in the 6th or 7th grade. And uh, this was when... Having a Walkman was like the coolest thing ever. Uh, I remember playing the video game Sid Meier's Civilization for hours and hours on end. Uh, I wish it had been a little more intricate because if I could have had more uh, true historical data to absorb, uh, I, I think I would have I would have gotten a PhD in history from all the hours I spent playing Sid Meier's Civilization. Um, but I think back to times in my life when I was for the period, and I, I know this can be this can sound um, uh, maybe trite, because I, I should say that the times in my life that mattered most were I don't know, serving serving my country overseas in two war zones, or uh, being in the Oval Office for for the for the first time, and um, I I think that uh, you know it's, we're allowed to just remember those times when we were truly at peace and happy, even if it wasn't uh, because we were changing the world or making things better. Uh, I think of playing Civilization, uh, listening to Soundgarden on a a boombox. I mean, the boombox that I used to have, it it had the two tape deck in it so that if you heard a song off the radio, uh, which I'm sure the music companies hate that people were doing this, but if I heard a song off the radio, it was it was a game of could I press record fast enough so I could record it, and I would make mixtapes and oh man, those mixtapes. When you had a good mixtape, it was it it made your week. I mean, and you listen to it and listen to it until you, know, you finally you know, got over, it, and then you had to make a new mixtape. Um, but I would sit there and uh, listen to some of the stations. Um, that we some of the big stations here in New York City and and make these mixtapes, but I would play Black Hole Sun uh, among other Soundgarden um, Soundgarden tracks, and uh, also you know now I'm gonna start admitting I'm gonna start admitting some '90s truth to you that I'll probably regret later. Uh, big Goo Goo Dolls fan, not afraid to say it, not gonna step away from that. Uh, Stone Temple Pilots, some people say they're overrated and they. 
a com- overly commercialized grunge. Soundgarden, of course, was an important part of the grunge scene. I never, I liked some of the grunge bands, but never really liked Nirvana, which I know is a uh, bit of a paradox. You see all these lists, and they'll say the greatest single song of the 90s on a lot of these uh, billboard lists and things that people put online would be Smells Like Teen Spirit by Nirvana. I always thought Nirvana just sounded like an angry garage band. I, I didn't get it. And I know that people yell at me for this, but we're allowed to have different different sensibilities, different taste. And, uh, and look, I'm admitting that I'll hear you know, that song, uh, Closing Time, and it'll just remind me of certain parties that I went to, even though I realize it's... I don't even remember who. I don't even remember the name of the band that did it, but, um, but yeah, that's as I was mentioning before. If you're just tuning in now, Chris Cornell, in an apparent suicide, died today, um, and just made me think about all the times I was listening to Soundgarden. Audio Slave, I knew, which was his later project. I never um, was as attached to it as I was to uh, Soundgarden, and yeah, I mean, being a like a young teenager. Uh, playing Civilization. My parents are great, man. On Friday night, they would let they would order in. You know, I, I lived in New York City. We'd order in Chinese or Indian or pizza, and you know, I would just. This is before I was overly distracted with trying to have a, a life outside of home. So I would just curl up, man, with Civilization. There are a few other games that I would play, but Civilization was the main one. Uh, rock out to the Soundgarden, M- maybe, maybe a little Dave Matthews. I'm I'm not gonna be shy about it. I'm not gonna pretend that didn't happen. Um, and when I need to think about a time when I was, when I just remember really being at peace, uh, that's one of them. Uh, and as I said before, it's not, it's not a profound sentiment. It's not, you know, being alongside the United States military in a struggle for America and for Western civilization against, uh, the nihilists of jihadism. Um, that's amazing. And, and I remember that in a very different way. Uh, but if I'm looking for a time when I was just at peace, um, it would it, Soundgarden brings me it brings me back there. Um, that's why I wanted to play the beginning of that song for you. And Black Hole Sun is their is their best song. Uh, I don't even like a lot of their stuff. Uh, there are only a few songs that I think I was particularly attached to. Um, but I, it's important as well, you know. As I've gotten along in some years and been doing more media, I used to say I'd, I didn't have time to read fiction. And I would only read nonfiction because I had so much that I wanted to learn and teach myself. And I still read a lot of nonfiction, but I've actually made space in my life for fiction. And I uh, make time as well to listen to music. And I mean just listen to music, not when I'm cleaning my room, not when I'm working out. I mean just listen and um, make that mental space available for yourself and allow yourself to be or many of you, whatever. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's, you know, Credence. I don't know if it's uh, Zeppelin, but uh, whatever it may be, you know, TLC. But to transport you back to a time when you are um, at peace and to just tap into that happiness. And it's it's a powerful thing. This is why musicians, why rock stars have uh, the followings they do and and have the, the cultural resonance that they do because there's something special about music that, um, has the ability to transport your mind. Anyway, so rest in peace, Chris Cornell, um, a, a great rock musician and uh, somebody I spent a lot of time listening to as a kid. All right, I'm going to uh, hit a break here, team. I will be back with you on the flip side. Don't go anywhere, and uh, we'll be right back. 
One of the defining characteristics of the social justice left is their obvious hypocrisy. Uh, you see this whenever they begin to talk about how uh, they are all about openness and, and inclusiveness, but then they are completely uh, horrific, nasty, derogatory towards conservatives or Christians or conservative Christians, even worse. Uh, so their posture, the public posture of these are my politics, I'm a social justice warrior, I'm a progressive, I am of the left because I'm so emotionally connected and open-minded and, and considerate towards others and inclusive. Uh, it all falls apart when they are confronted with those who don't fit into the ideology of uh, victimization, of uh, what, what they call intersectionality. Intersectionality is a view of society that is based entirely upon class, gender, and race struggle. And it is zero sum in the sense that, you know, someone is always benefiting at someone else's expense, and there are structures in place, systemic. This is where they start using big SAT words to sound all fancy. Uh, there are systemic uh, issues that are not just the way things are, but in fact are part of an active plot to suppress and negate and undermine other groups. And in intersectionality, of course, white straight males or white uh, cisgender, uh, gender binary males. There's this whole new language, by the way, that we can all learn and talk about. I make jokes about it sometimes when we have our friend from Heath Street, Emily Zanotti, on, and instead of being part of the patriarchy, she's starting the matriarchy. Uh, but there is this entirely new language. But you know that these social justice uh, w wimps are not being upfront with themselves about what they really think because they're actually quite judgmental. They're not open-minded. They're hyper-judgmental. They just have created a system that is kind of the mirror image of the Jon Stewart show, The Daily Show, when he was still doing it, which is that we're the good guys. We're always right. We always win. There's no need for self-reflection. And in fact, merely hearing the opinions of others might undermine my goodness and how amazing I am, and therefore... Um, I will shut down that speech. And to, to take that to its complete ends, you get people on campuses that are like, your words upset me so much that I will engage in violence and feel righteous in doing so against you because your speech is tantamount to violence, which is uh, quite a leap. Um, this is reminds me of how on campus some of the uh, the hyperbole about rape culture, rape culture, which does not exist, which is a false term, um, but the hyperbole about rape culture and how even unwanted, an unwanted gaze can be a form of sexual assault. So your eyeballs looking at somebody can be a sexual assault, according to the social justice left, which clearly demeans sexual assault. Okay, um, there's this professor, uh, and this is really getting to the point about whether people act the same way and feel the same way publicly as they do privately as they espouse all this stuff um, and whether they're hypocrites, whether the social justice left is full of hypocrites. We've got this Yale dean, June Chu, who advises 500 students and she is, quote, supposed to foster a familiar, comfortable living environment. And she has sought to help students not only succeed academically, but to support their holistic academic experience and multifaceted identities. 
But here's the problem, and now this has really caught fire. It started out with the Yale Daily News, the college paper reporting on it, but now um, it's gone into the pages of the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal. This professor, who's all about uh, all about inclusiveness, multifaceted identities, and a holistic experience for her students, has been writing some Yelp reviews. I'm telling you, the comment section, people think that it's all anonymous in the comment section. It's not. They can always find you. Everything online, everything digital is, is unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on the circumstance, uh, it's there forever. Uh, but she was writing about people being white trash, and she made jokes about obese people, and she uh, was clearly an elitist in all the worst senses. She would write things that were particularly nasty about about the di- this was a, at some restaurants she would mock those who were there and the things that she wrote would you would think be at odds um at odds with someone who she wrote about white trash and low-class folks and barely educated morons so this is what you and i know these college professors and deans many of them this is this is the culture there are exceptions of course there are wonderful college professors and deans and i know that but the overall culture on the campus is that you talk about inclusiveness and diversity and how wonderful and kind and loving you are but you sneer at republicans and trump and trump voters and conservatives and Christ- oh christians christians are in some ways the worst if you're taking the campus line on this Christians very much by and I mean traditional believing Christians not like you know once or twice a year and uh, you know I went to Sunday school a couple of times 20 years ago or 50 years ago Christians uh, believing Christians are hated by the progressive left on campus uh, but yeah this this woman this this professor has now gotten into all kinds of trouble and it's interesting because they realize that they've, they've run into some problems the social justice left has run into some problems with inconsistency you know, with transracialism, for example, and transgenderism, right? You can change your gender as an act of will, as an act of just choice, but you can't, which you, I mean, you can't actually change your gender. It's a separate discussion. Or you can, but you can't change your race. Um, and that has even legal ramifications to it and, and real uh, social impact. Uh, but they don't have a very good argument for that. I talked about that. I should note, I brought up that whole story about the woman for Hypatia magazine um, about uh, you know the feminist journal of uh, philosophy that since I talked about that a few weeks ago that's been making the rounds all everyone really likes to sink their uh, sink their teeth into that one that's been a really interesting story for a lot of folks um, anyway so this they're now suspending this uh, this Yale Dean um, they are they're suspending her because they think she was culturally insensitive and you see, they know that they can't, as a matter of official policy, they may, behind closed doors, professors, media, you know, elitist Democrats, they may sneer at, at uh, working class white people and rural white people, believing Christians and a bunch of other groups that they view as contemptible. But they can't do it as a matter of open policy because that exposes their hypocrisy too much. So when they're caught... They got to punish one of their own. And that's what seems to be happening here with this uh, Yale Dean. So uh, another story that we will uh, be keeping an eye on as it goes forward. Please do download the podcast Buck Sexton with America now on iTunes. Click subscribe. Tell a friend or two about the show. Also, BuckSexton.com. I posted a piece there yesterday. More 
coming soon. I assure you we're going to be ramping that up. So go to BucksAxon.com. If you wouldn't mind, share your email with me. That'd be great. We'll add you for our newsletter. And uh, we got a fantastic Freestyle Friday show coming up tomorrow. Until then, my friends, Shields High.